Well, if you got a Bible, we're going back to Colossians 3 today. Our union with Christ guides our life is the title, part two. Let's pray, Father, just ask you, Lord, that you'll open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts, Lord, and, and uh, just ask you'll help us to see our union with you, what it signifies, and how it gives us power over sin. And I thank you that you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1, uh, Paul writes, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, in the which you also walked some time when you lived in them, but now you also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which you are called in one body. And be ye thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. We talked last time about what is the heart of the gospel and how Paul describes a believer. We have here in Colossians 3, he's saying that we have a new identity. He's telling us here in these first four verses, now you have been risen with Christ. You're dead and your life is hidden with Christ, that he is our life. And because of that, we're so wrapped up in his destiny, is so wrapped up into our destiny that one day we will be with him in glory. When he appears, we will appear with him. He's not going to come without us. And we're all going to be raised up together at that time. We said Paul, he never used the term Christian like we do. Well, I'll do it today. I mean, that's just the way I talk about it. Back then, it wasn't a, a really a compliment to be called a Christian. But instead, Paul literally hundreds of times would refer to believers as those that are in Christ, in Him, in the Lord. We did things with Him, speaking of our union with Christ. That is how the great Apostle Paul described the Christian life, being united with Christ. And it's so critical this union with Christ, because without it, if you didn't have union with Christ, if you weren't united with him, you would perish. Because Romans 8.1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation, no judgment, no future judgment coming for whom? For those who are in Christ Jesus. 
You have to be in union with Him. What that means is we're hidden in Christ. And so when God looks at us, when He looks at you now, if you're a believer, He doesn't see you, He sees Jesus and what He did for you. But those that are not in union with Christ, condemnation is not only coming, it's on them. And it says that in John 3.36, He that believes on the Son has, not going to get it, has everlasting life, but he that believes not, obeys not the Son. It says, these are strong words. This is John 3, John the Apostle of Love. It says that the Son it does not b- obey or believe the Son shall not only not see life, but it says that the wrath of God abides on him currently. I mean, that is tough. But that was all of us at one time, and that's everyone that is not in union with Christ. Because it's only as you're united to him that everything he did on the cross becomes ours. And everything he did, we're just alienated from God. That's how critical that union with Christ is. I talked about it last week. Believe me, you don't have it down. I don't have it down. And I've been looking at this stuff for a while and I've looked at it in the past. But it's something that really should be emphasized, I think, more than it is on a regular basis. I'm not going to repeat myself last week totally with the things I said. But I want to talk a little more about that union You know, Paul says that bond, that union between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it's a mystery, but he says it's comparable to a one flesh marriage union. In Ephesians 5, he says, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, united to his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. He says, that's a great mystery. I mean, I don't know how me and my wife are one flesh, but I know we are. But I can't explain it. You know, people that are married, been married even a month, you know what I'm talking about, maybe a day. But the longer you're married, the more it becomes evident. But he says it's a great mystery. He says, but I'm not talking about husband and wives, this one flesh. He says, I'm talking about Christ in the church. He says, I'm talking about Jesus and believers. So he's saying we are so united to him. Do we think about ourselves this way? I'm saying we don't always do. We? But he says we are part of his bone, of his flesh, of his body. So that when Paul touched Stephen, the flesh of Stephen, who was he touching? He was touching Jesus. I mean, that shows it right there, what he's saying. Happened in the book of Acts. Not only that, but the Bible says that our spirit is now one with the spirit of Jesus. We're one spirit. Now, that is not just a figure of speech, just something to toss out there. Well, yeah, that sounds spiritual. Amen. Let's move to the next point. No, we we need to think about these things. Seriously. It's a major doctrine that we need to understand to help us in our Christian walk. When we become one with him, this isn't like those Eastern cults where they, you know, want to get you in with the great world, the great I am, and you kind of lose your identity and all that stuff they teach. I got into that at one point before I became a Christian, the Chinese meditation stuff. That's not what he's talking about there. We keep our identity, don't we? But it's just like a husband and wife. They don't lose their identity when they get married, when they become one flesh. They're still different people with different personalities, but they're one, aren't they? And he's saying we're one spirit with the Lord. And we're going to turn to a few passages here early on. I think it's important. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 6. And look what he says here. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 15. He says, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? He's like, God forbid. What? He says, don't you know that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But look at verse 17. He says, but he that is joined unto the Lord is what? He says, one spirit. One spirit. That's how united we are to the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, we'll read the rest. He says, then flee fornication. Flee it. Don't pursue it. Every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. And then he says in verse 19, what? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost who is in you, which you have of God and you are not your own? He says you're bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We're one spirit with him and his spirit dwells in us. We are his temple. We read in the Old Testament how his presence and his power would come in the literal old temple. That's just a type of what we are now. We are now his temple. Individually, you're his temples. And when it's all brought together here in a meeting like this, our church is then the temple of the Holy Spirit. A bunch of little temples become one big temple. And God inhabits us, doesn't he? Inhabits our praise in a way that's different than we're our little temple at home and walking through life. That's the way it is. That's something to think about. Our spirit and the spirit of God are one spirit. Now that is an amazing statement. We're no longer of the spirit of Adam and of the spirit of this age. We are now the spirit of God. We are sons of God. Children of God is what he's saying there. The other part of that is we're so united to him. When you become united and in union with Jesus Christ, that when God looks at us, he looks at us as he looks at his son. The Bible teaches that the love that he has, everyone in here would say, oh yes, we understand he loves his son infinitely and beyond measure. When you become in union with him, he loves you the exact same way. And that's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? Look in John 17, but that's exactly what Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer that we would know. Not only us, but he says he wants the world to know that. Turn to John 17, and look what it says there. John 17, we're going to cut in on this prayer, but look in verse 23. Here he speaks, beginning in verse 23, about our union. I in union with them, that's us, and thou in me. That's the Father is in the Son, in union with Him, that they may be made perfect in one. And look what He says, and that the world may know that Thou hast sent me and hast loved them, that's us, as Thou hast loved me. Have you ever thought about that? He doesn't love us with a different love. Jesus says He wants the world to know and us to know that the same way, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He said of Jesus, didn't He? And He says that of us. Now, we're not His Son by nature, but we're adopted. But He doesn't look at us like, well, you're just adopted, you're second class. He's saying, I love you the same way. We just read it. I didn't make it up. Isn't that what it says? Do you have loved them as... At the end of verse 23, thou hast loved me. One of the reason this is such a, an important teaching to understand is, well, I think one of the greatest problems we have as Christians is that we tend to think of Jesus and Christ as a Savior that is outside of us. 
that he died 2,000 years ago, was buried, raised to life, ascended to God into heaven. And if we're good enough, we prayed our prayer, and if we're good enough and try hard enough, then one day we'll be raised from the dead to meet him and all that. And what that does, that makes all your Christianity, it tends to make it external, doesn't it? What Christ has done for us. And he has done things for us. He hung on the cross. That was his work. He was our substitute. We weren't the ones hanging there in our place. And we will one day be raised to meet him. That's true. That's all true. But when we make our Christianity merely an external and, so to speak, objective, we miss the great truth that Peter, Jesus himself, Paul, and John all emphasized. And that is this. Paul said, it's back a chapter where we were in Colossians 3, it's Christ in you, in you, in union with you that is the hope of glory. That's our hope. We only have life, forgiveness, power, all spiritual blessings because we're united to him and he is in us. He really is. That's not just talk. There to be experienced. Another verse, if you would turn back to 1 John 5. Verses 11 and 12. Talking about our union with Christ. We'll start in verse 10. He that believeth on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that believes not God has made him a liar because he's not believed the record that God gave of his Son. In verse 11 he says, well this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And everyone would say amen. But how does that life come to us? It says this life is where? In his son. Verse 12, he that has the son has life. He that has not the son of God has not life. And so to have the son is to be united to him. You've received him. He's received you. It's that marriage union that's taken place. When you have the son, he's saying you have eternal life. That's what union with Christ is gives us the life of God. It also causes us to become born again. It's one and the same with regeneration. If any man be in Christ, if you're in Christ, then you are a new creation, he says. And, and the result of that is that old things have passed away, and he says, behold, all things have become new. Amen. Totally new. And also, the other tremendous <laughs> result of that is it allows us to partake of the divine nature. And that's not the same as the life of God. It's the divine nature. 2 Peter 1, 4 says, Wherefore are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. I mean, that is almost impossible to comprehend. Because you have to think, and we still tend to think in terms of what we are, what we were before, whatever. But we got to realize we were worms, children of wrath, unclean, haters of God. But he says, this is what he's done for us through his promises, through his work on the cross. He has washed us and made us clean. And not only that, he could have just done that and taken us to heaven. But no, it, because of this union that's taken place, we are now partakers of the divine nature. That's no small thing. And partakers means we share in it. Koinonia, that's the word, partakers, koinonia. That's what we're getting ready to do, share food, share fellowship. And he's saying we partake, we share of that divine nature's. That only happens because we are in union with him. 
the divine nature you partake of. That's every Christian. <laughs> no exceptions. His nature, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We partake of all of that and we participate in those things. I've said it last week because of our union with Christ. We're counted to have done everything that Jesus did. That's how God sees us. And one way of understanding that is that's the way it worked with our union with our great grandpappy Adam. That's the way it works. Because you and I, guess what? We never tasted the fruit. We didn't commit that sin, but yet God counted us as if we did. Because at the point that Adam and Eve ate that fruit, they represented all of humanity. When he sinned, God said, and it's Romans 5.12, he said, we sinned. His nature then became our nature. His curse became our curse. His death became our death. But I wasn't there. Were you there? I wasn't there. Romans 5.12, wherefore, as by one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin, it says, and so death passed upon all men for all sinned. But there was only one there. But we all were counted as committing that sin just like we were right there eating the fruit too. And Paul goes on to say that what Adam did, it affected all of us. He says this, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's how we were made sinners by nature. Because of Adam and our connection with him. In Adam, in union with Adam, all die. In Christ, even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. So our union with Christ gives us life, just like our union with Adam gave us death. When Adam fell, his nature became corrupt, and so did ours. Like I said, what he did was exactly the same as if we did it. He passed on his wicked nature. His seed passed it on to his children. They passed it on to their children right on down to us. Just kept on going. All men are in Adam. And you say, that's not fair. Why do I have to take the blame for what he did? That's not fair. Well, listen, that's the way the world works, isn't it? You think about it, and our president makes a decision and signs a bill, and it affects the whole nation because of one man's decision, right? Hitler decides he wants to take over the world, and guess what? Germany suffered the consequences because of one man's disobedience. That's just the way life is. But it works the same for those that are in Christ as those that are in Adam. In Adam, our union with him, we received his nature, and in Christ, we receive his nature, the divine nature. Amen. I mean, that is no small thing. I mean, whatever. I can't make it bigger than I can say it. But everything that Jesus did, Adam was our representative. It was counted as if we did it. It's the same. This is what I talked about last week. I just want to hit this again. But it's the same with the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he did as our representative was counted as if we did it. It's like God saw us doing what he did. When he was crucified, when he died, when he was buried and rose again and was exalted, the Bible teaches so were we. This is what baptism is all about. And all of this is proclaimed. If you would turn to Romans 6, you will look at this and see that. And this is something we really need to get a hold of. We participated in what he did. First thing we see in Romans 6, 6 is we were crucified with him. Look what he says in verse 6. 
knowing this, that our old man is or was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Listen, you'd be like, I wasn't hanging on the cross then. I wasn't either. But guess what? Because of our union with Christ, when he hung on that cross, Jesus saw you hanging there, in a sense. He saw you hanging just the same as Jesus. He's your representative. What he did is the same as if you did it. It says, we died with him. Look in verse 3. Know you not, don't you know, that as so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. And look in verse 8. He says, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. God looks on you and I as if we really died on the cross. It's counted as if you did. So that's the only way God sees you, that your old self is dead. He no longer looks and sees Terry Murphy, the sinner, because the devil will tell you, and other people sometimes will, it's just the same old Terry Murphy. And God says, no, he was on the cross when the Lord Jesus Christ, that's how I see him now and forever, because he's united to him. No, he's dead. Old Terry Murphy's long gone. That's not him. That's what he would say for all of us. And then in verse 4, it says, we're buried with him. This is all withs, a bunch of withs. Verse 4, look what it says. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That is like Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. You think about it, the corpse of our Lord Jesus Christ. He laid in that tomb for three days. And then after that, life came into his body. I don't exactly know how it happened, if it was slow or fast or what, but his eyes opened he moved, the grave clothes fell off, and he came to life. Now, what is God saying? Is He's saying that we came to life with him. When he came to life, that was us coming to life too. God saw it that way. And that's what Ephesians 2.5 says. Even when you were dead in sins, God made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2.5, that's what it says. When he came alive, Paul Loxton, you came alive with him then. Because you were dead before that. So we participate in a real way with everything he did. Everything he did in his life because of our union with him. It's as if we did it. That's what God says. And it says we're raised with him. We read verse 4, the end of that. Like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It affects our life now. Everything he did, we participated in it. And it's not something that just he did and, well, that's nice. He died for our sins. But it's, no, it affects our life now. That's what Paul's saying here all through this Romans chapter 6. Ephesians 2 said that we've been raised together with Christ, not only raised together, but seated with him in heavenly places. We're exalted where he is. And he says now that all things are under his feet. And because we're in him, all things are under our feet too. Dominion, principalities, powers. The devil doesn't have power over us in that way. He doesn't. We have authority over him. And you're like, man, I don't feel very exalted. 
you know, I'm laying bricks the other day and it just, you know, I didn't feel that good about doing it or whatever your trade is. We walk by faith, don't we? And not by sight. That doesn't mean that we're not, in a sense, really up there because of that union, that spiritual union. We are with him. And look about it like this. When Stephen was on earth being stoned, and he's probably thinking, I don't feel very exalted, but by faith he was up with Christ. That space and all that didn't mean he wasn't there, did it? Because what happened? When he's stoned and he's dying, he sees Jesus is where? He's up there in heaven, sees a vision with his hands to receive Stephen. But Stephen's down on earth. But yet, he told Paul, you were stoning me. In a few minutes, as that stoning took place, his faith did become sight, didn't it? Because guess where he was? Right there with the Lord Jesus Christ. Being embraced. That's where we are right now by faith. And one day, it will all be sight. But spiritually, it's still true. Where he's at is our position right now. That's the message. When we get baptized, we're sending a message to people here, people in the world, that through faith in Jesus Christ, we now have a new identity. Totally new men and women in union with Christ. Here's what the message is. We're going to read through the first five verses of Romans 6 instead of skipping around like I do. But here's the message that when because of what that represents in our new identity, we're going to see as this opens up, we should get rid of everything that contradicts it. Everything that contradicts our new identity. That's what he's saying. Look in Romans 6, look at the beginning of verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he is like, that's as strong as it gets in verse 2 in the Greek. God forbid. He's like, no way. It contradicts everything you're about to continue in sin. You can't do that. God forbid. Because he says, how can you that are dead to sin, how can you live any longer therein? He's like, how does that work? Don't you know, Paul says, verse 3, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, that baptism is symbolic of an actual death. You were baptized into his death. Therefore, he says, we're buried with him, your old man, by baptism into death. And that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth, from here on out, we can live as sinners and do what we want and everything's okay? What does he say? That henceforth, we should not serve sin. That's not your identity anymore. So if you're living in sin, that baptism might have just been a bad bath, like I like to tell them in prison. Bad bath, there wasn't any soap and you didn't get your hair washed. But it really does mean something. It's supposed to symbolize what has truly happened to us spiritually dead our old man that old nature there was a real nature there it's dead and we've been given a new nature if you're a christian the nature of god the life of god his seed is in us just like we came from adam's seed which is corrupt he's saying we have a real seed in us the nature of god that makes us sons of god we're born of god born again a new creation that's what it's saying And that's the gospel. 
a new identity united to Jesus Christ, died to our old ways, our old nature, our life which was in Adam was buried in his tomb, put in his tomb. And now we're raised to walk in newness of life in this present wicked world. That's what we're raised to do because we talked last week. We've been taken out of literally the kingdom of darkness with the nature of Adam and the evil nature we had. And we've been put into another kingdom. Literally, we're in another kingdom if you're a Christian. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's instructing God's people. This is how you walk. This is how kingdom people live in this present world. The Sermon on the Mount, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ coming through us. And believe me, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit to do that to come even close. And that's how it is. And finally, we will share in his, in his final glory, won't we? We'll be partakers of that. So how does this union take place? How are we united to Jesus? And you're like, well, that's pretty simple. Okay, it is simple. But we need to be reminded, we're united to him through the Holy Spirit. So if you would, turn to John 14. John 14, and we're going to begin reading in verse 15. And Jesus said, John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And he says, I'll pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him. He says, But you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. He says, I will not leave you comfortless. Really, the word is desolate or orphans. He says, I'm not going to leave you orphans. What does he say? I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world sees me no more, but you see me because I live. He says, you shall live also. And at that day, you will know that I am in the Father and ye in me and I in you. What day is he talking about? The day you receive the Holy Spirit. And he that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. That means make myself real or evident to him. And Judas is like, well, how can you do that? How can you manifest yourself just to us and the world not see you too? And he answers that. He says, well, Jesus answered and said to him, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come unto him and make our dwelling place with him or in him. He's saying I can manifest myself and this is what should be happening with us through the Holy Spirit. We should have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that we know he's walking in us, talking in us, living in us. He is with us. His presence is manifest to us. The world can't see that, but it should be very real to us. Amen. And not just an idea or a concept that I hope one day it happens. No, this is what we should be experiencing if you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We read this earlier. We are the temple of God. He dwells in us. And like I said in the Old Testament, his presence would fill the temple, wouldn't it? First Corinthians 3.16, he says, Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's similar to 1 Corinthians 6. But listen, I always love this verse here. 2 Corinthians 6.16 6, says this. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. And walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people.
Paul says, since we have this promise, it's a promise. The promise is God Almighty through the Holy Spirit. That's why we looked at that verse in John 14. God Almighty himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't split him up. When you have one, you have all three. So when you have the Holy Spirit, but he says, the promise is, I will dwell in them, live in us. He doesn't come and go. We're not a Motel 6. Leave the light on for you, Lord. He's with us forever. Isn't that what he said? Send the spirit of truth that he may abide with you, live with you forever. And he says, I will dwell in them and I will walk with them. And walking, walking with God is used as a picture of what? It's used as a picture throughout the Bible of communion with him, speaking with him, fellowshipping with him in a real way. We read in the Old Testament, Enoch walked with God. What's that mean? That means he's walking with, he's communing with him. And it said the same thing of Noah. And Noah, boy, we're in the days of Noah. If it's not a time we need to be walking and communing with the Lord, this is the day. <laughs> it's the day. And what about in the garden? Genesis 3.8, it says God walked with them in the cool of the day before sin came. That should be our relationship with the Lord through the Holy Spirit. That's what this union with Christ brings us. It's really hard to comprehend, I honestly think. But it's something we need to think about and pray for God to let us know. What one man wrote, think about it this way. The same Jesus who overcame every temptation and was perfectly obedient, that same Jesus is in you and I now. The same Jesus that had compassion on the crowds, cast out spirits and healed the sick, that same Jesus is in us now. The same Jesus that led by being a servant and humbly washed his disciples' feet is the same Jesus that is in us now. Think about that. It's not hard to understand the words we read, the English, but it's hard to know and experience it and understand it in that way. And that's why, believe me, I'm not going to quote it, but that's why Paul did say, in Ephesians 1, that he prays that our eyes and our understanding have to be open to know what God has given us. Has to know that. We are going to look at this one, though, because he also prays later on in Ephesians that this indwelling, Christ dwelling in our hearts and what that means and his love for us and him being in us, we have to have that. We can't understand that without God opening our understanding. Not only that, he says we need to be strengthened to be able to receive it. Now, that's amazing. Look at Ephesians 3, if you would. In verse 14, Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. He's not praying that Christ doesn't and that he may come to dwell in your hearts. He's saying you need to understand that he dwells in your heart by faith. So it becomes a reality to you is what he's saying, that you being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, you may be able, this is the prayer, may be able to comprehend with all saints. Because it's not easy to comprehend. God has to reveal it to us. What is the breadth, length, depth, and height? And to know, experience the love of Christ, 
which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And that is something, this whole union with Christ, what it means, the love of God that dwells in us, his power. That's what he talks about back in Ephesians 1, the authority we have. All of that has to be something, just because you read your Bible or attend church, you're not going to get that. It's got to be something we have to desire, press in for, and pray for, for God to reveal to us. That's the way it is. The kingdom of heaven is going to suffer violence, and the violent take it by force, and that includes understanding. If you would, turn back to Colossians 3. I'm going to move on past verse 4. You know, once we understand our new identity in Christ, once we understand that, that we participated in his redemption, that we understand, this is why I went through all this, once we understand all that, that he lives and walks in us. So that's why Paul starts off with all of those things. You need to understand who you are, what he's done for you, where your position is. Then I'm going to tell you how you should live that out. When he gives this exhortation to put to death the old and put on the new, then you should be like, okay, yeah, of course. That's the way it ought to be. How else could I live? You know, if I died with Jesus and my old self is dead and buried with him, which God clearly says it is, then how could I live like that anymore? And if I've been raised to walk in newness of life with him and he's in me to give me that power of a new life, I'm going to trust him to do that. That should be our response, not, oh, man, you're going to tell me now what I can't do. Oh, I so bad want to do it. That's the problem. You so bad want to do it. That's the old Adam that felt that way about sin. We shouldn't feel that way anymore, should we? So we should be able to say with Paul, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In me he liveth. The life that I now live is by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why would I want to live like I used to live in any way? That old life should be back there, right? All that was going to do was bring us into judgment, and we'll see that. He begins verse 5. He says, mortify therefore. Therefore. Why is he saying therefore? Because of all of what he said is true of us as Christians. We can deal with sin because of who lives in you. In my opinion, you don't need a lot of books, a lot of how-to books on how to overcome lust, how to overcome pornography, how to overcome anger, because Paul has just given us the key to understand that. It's our union with Christ. And he's going to go on to explain how to deal with it. I mean, you could read all the books you wanted to about how to quit smoking. The most effective way they found out is you just cut it off and quit cold turkey. Don't taper off. Don't try to talk your way out of it. That's kind of what he's saying here. Your old man died in baptism. Then Paul's saying here, then let him be dead. Let him stay under the water of baptism. Because when he's saying mortify, he's saying you've got to be radical. You've got to be radical with anything that belongs to your old life. Your members, he's saying kill them, put them to death. He's saying, don't pamper them, don't feed them, but you need to strangle them, right? Hold them under the water because they no longer have a right over you because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did. 
This list that Paul gives here in verse 5, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness with idolatry. It seems like he goes from sexual things to idolatry because we typically think of idolatry as being greed. I think it's all the same. I think it's one and the same. So he goes from the outward to the inward is the way that list progresses. He goes from the outward act of fornication or sexual immorality to the inward desires that feed the action that lead to it. And finally, he gets to the root of the problem. When it says there, concupiscence, that just means a strong evil desire and covetousness, which is greed, which means I can't have enough idolatry. And I'm telling you, we live in a country, and it was like that back then. It's sort of been man's problem since day one. Today, I'm not going to say everything I could, or I don't know if I should, but we live in a country that is becoming more and more and more consumed and greedy with sex. Can't have enough. I'm going to read you what someone else wrote, so you maybe have less problem than if I said it. This man, Sinclair Ferguson, wrote this. He said, God created us male and female, for himself and for each other. But as Paul makes it clear here, when we are under the dominion of sin, we rebel against his ordering of reality. And instead of loving and giving ourselves in the bond of marriage and thanking God for it, here's what sinners do. We desire, we demand, we lust, and we distort what God has made. He goes on to say, and then since we discover that we must have them and actually need them, we find ourselves in bondage to them. And he said one would almost need to be blind or at least ignore the media not to realize that sex in one form or another has become the idol of our day. And I'm telling you, that's an understatement. I'm not going to get into all this, but I just read something. It was a high school newspaper put out in San Juan, California, and it's put out by these high school students. All of it was ab about sex and how, in essence, whatever someone wants to do, we should not be judgmental. It's just whatever they're comfortable with. What's taken place is just like yesterday with those marches. We have teenagers telling the country how we should think, feel, and order our lives. And we've got teenagers telling other teenagers how they should govern their lives sexually. That is insanity. And it's also a sign, I think in Isaiah, it says, your children and your women will rule over you. Because I saw a video of a young man sitting in his dorm room with his girlfriend and this guy's 20 years old and people will watch these videos. They'll write and ask him questions. And here's a 20 year old. He's the expert on sex and life. And he basically just says, whatever you want to do, it's OK, whether you don't have sex or you just just whatever you do. And this guy's an expert on everything at 20 years old. I don't mean to offend any young people in here. I really don't by saying that's was why I said more than I was planning on saying, because I don't mean to be offensive. But if you could just take my word from somebody that was at one time 20, that you don't know anything, honestly, unless you really are born again. This world, I'm just telling you, what's going on in this social media and what comes through these phones comes through phones and they're hard to regulate versus you didn't have access to that at any other period of this world. And it is literally dragging our youth.
I'm saying this with a broken heart, not because I'm glad about it or trying to be judgmental. It is dragging our youth into the pit because they're seeing things they were never meant to be seen at young ages and told that that's okay. And anybody that says that's not okay is being judgmental. Listen, nobody can judge anybody, can we? In that sense, God will be the final judge, but you can say we know what he has said and what he will judge, and you're just playing with fire in doing all that. Because we have people, young people, and it's adults too. It doesn't just stop with them. I mean, David Wilkerson, his ministry at the end became, he's brokenhearted because minister after minister after minister is saying they're addicted to pornography. Because they sit in this screen by a room by themselves and they get what I'm like, that is crazy. And saying they're godly men. I'm thinking they're not godly men. Not if they're still involved in that. He's saying you got to mortify that. That means you don't fool around with it. You got to cut it off. Whatever it takes. Young people, I didn't grow up a Christian. And when I got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit at 21 years old, I had to do what it's saying here. People think nobody can live like that. Yes, you can. By the grace of God, you can. You don't have to live enslaved to lust. And like I've said, the young people think they're being free. Because all we can do, don't put any restraints on me. I had the lyrics to this Disney thing I saw to where... This guy sees this little three-year-old girl going around singing the lyrics to this song, and it's like, no change, because I can do, I can be myself. Like I said, that's how these, what's the word we use in 2 Corinthians, these castles are built in people's minds that you can't break through, that truth can't break through, because they indoctrinate them at three years old through a Disney movie. She said, outwardly, I'm going to be the sweet little girl they expect me to be, but inside, I'm going to be free and do whatever I want, and that's what they do when they get away from their parents. And it's not good. And they think they're free, but they're slaves to sin. They can't stop it. That's what the Bible teaches. And true freedom comes. It's like I've heard somebody say, well, you know, true freedom is when you could get drunk or not get drunk. But I choose. I don't want to. But sinners, they can't not be sinners. They have to be sinners. Because they're slaves to sin. And that's why Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But he that commits sin is a slave to sin. And here's the way you deal with sexual sins. You don't need a book. You need to strangle them at their roots. And that's what's at the end of this list in verse 5. He talks about that strong evil desire and covetousness. That strong evil desire. King James concupiscence. And that is what James said you need to do. That evil desire comes. You need to strangle it, mortify it, kill it. Because if you don't, that's what gives birth to fornication. And if you remember, we talked about James. He said, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And that word for lust there is the same word we have in King James for evil concupiscence. He's tempted when you are drawn away because you've got this strong lust. And if you don't crucify it, he goes on to say that when that lust is conceived, it conceives, that strong desire conceives, it brings forth sin. And when that sin takes Place And he's talking here about fornication. Then what happens? Fornication issues in death. 
because he's got these lists, these sex lists. They're in Ephesians, Galatians. They're all over. They that commit such things, he says, don't be deceived. Don't let anybody tell you that you can be involved in fornication, sexual sins, anger, all these things. And that somehow you're going to make it into heaven. He said, don't let anybody deceive you to say that. Because he says, they that commit such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So how do you kill the root? Well, it's not that difficult, really, but you refuse to let your eye wander. You don't let your mind meditate on images that you know you shouldn't. And that's the problem we have with our youth today. They have their minds are just consumed with that, filled with it. You deliberately reject any sinful, lustful thought, suggestion, desire, deed, or circumstance at the moment it begins. If you haven't trained yourself to do that, it will be a, I'm telling you, a war. A war, but it is a war that we can win, isn't it? That's what the purpose of all this is. Paul said, you've got a new identity. You've got a power within you. That's why we read all that stuff. I didn't do that because I didn't have anything else to do. But when the Lord Jesus Christ is in you and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, yes, you can overcome sin. You don't have to live in sin. And so he gives his second list down in verse 8. But now you also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. So he talks about putting those sins off. He's saying, take them off. Take them off like an old pair of clothes. And it begins with anger. You know, Vines describes anger as a settled, abiding condition of the mind with a view to take vengeance, a hostility, vengeance. It's like you keep turning over something that somebody has done to you. You just keep turning it over in your mind and not letting it go. And eventually it's going to come out. I watched this video of this man when they were having the trials for those doctors that were molesting all those gymnasts. And this guy that was coming up, his girl's case was coming up, and the man was out in the little area where the people that are watching. And the judge made the mistake of asking the father of this girl, there's the doctor sitting there, and he says, is there anything you'd like to say to him? And the man stood up, and he seemed kind of rather calm at first, but then all of a sudden he just got filled with anger, and he literally jumped over the thing, ran, and was going to grab that doctor. He'd have torn him in pieces, and the deputies are all trying to, you know, they had to wrestle him down and get him caught. He's cussing. That's what anger is. Because that guy had been sitting there thinking about what that doctor and going over it, and it just came out. It's just settled. That's the kind of anger Paul's talking about here. And then secondly, he goes on to talk about wrath. It's more of a sudden, not a premeditated, this condition of your feelings that just rise up, that quickly rise and quickly fall, go just away. We think of wrath as somebody just, ah, and their veins sticking out of their neck and blasting somebody away. But this one scholar, he says really the idea behind that word is a boiling agitation of feeling. It's like you just get really agitated or irritated at someone or some situation and you get noticeably impatient. And the root cause of that is, think about it. Think about it whenever that's happened with you is you're kind of exalting yourself over somebody else and you're just not happy with the way God is ordaining your circumstances and the events in your life. For instance, you know, you're driving along, the speed limit is 70 and suddenly you're trapped behind somebody that's driving 50 
and you can see that they are texting with one hand, eating the sandwich with the other hand, and driving with their knees, right? And all of a sudden, it's wrath, isn't it? It's not premeditated. You've never seen them before. I hope you never see them again. But you're irritated. You're exasperated. Those emotions, they rise and fall, really. But you're just unhappy with these circumstances. <laughs> and you're forgetting that God is in control. He brought you there. <laughs> it's easy to forget, though, isn't it? Uh, that's what it's all about. And the next two sins it talks about there, now it uses the word blasphemy. It's really, well, it talks about malice, and then it talks about blasphemy, which is really slander. So blasphemy is when you slander God, but he's talking here about other people and it's attitudes and speech, malice and blasphemy or slander, which destroy another person's character. And malice is ill will to do somebody harm. And that is done with the tongue, isn't it? The Bible talks about they have a tongue that's sharp as a sword and you can cut people up like that, can't you? When you have ill will in, in there. And he ends the list talking about filthy or foul language. And like I said, that is a generation that we have today. In between all those lists, though, Paul gives two motivations on how to kill off those sins. In verse 6, he says what? He says when he talks about all those sexual sins, for which things, he says, things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedient. We need to get God's perspective on those sins. It permeates our society and everyone acts like it's okay. Don't say a word against any of this stuff going on. But what we take... Lightly, by reading how God reacts to it, it's saying he hates it and he is going to pour out his wrath on those that commit those sins. Listen up. That's what he says. That's the word of God. Why is that? Because those sins, fornication, all that sexual impurity, it destroys what he loves. He's telling us as his people, he's writing to Christians that how can we partake in what put Jesus on the cross? Because God poured his wrath on Jesus for our sins. So how can we get back in to what put him on the cross and partake of that? That's basically what he's saying. But he's also telling us when we read that in verse 6, for which sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. He's also telling us, do we think that we somehow are going to escape the same judgment as sinners if we're doing what sinners do? Because if that was the case and we lived just like they did, God would be unjust, wouldn't he? How's he going to let us off and punish them for this? We're doing the same things. That'd make him unjust. And that's kind of his point there. The second thing, look in verse 7, he says, In the which also you walked some time when you lived in them. And he's just telling us, hey, that's how you lived your former life. But he's saying that life has been put away like a pair of dirty, soiled clothes. It's been taken off. And that old life is something as a Christian, at least for me, you should be ashamed of. And he says that in Romans 6. He says, when you were the slaves of sin, you were free from righteousness. When you were a slave of sin, you didn't care about doing what was right. He goes, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? Paul says, for the end of those things is death. Say, why would you want to get back into the things you're, you should be ashamed of now as a Christian and knowing those things are what would lead to death? So he ends his exhortation here in verse 9 of things to put off. He says, that lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. Now, I don't think Paul is talking there about just not telling outright lies or non-truth. 
He is talking there, lie not one to another. So he's talking about how Christians should be relating to Christians, isn't he? So when he's saying don't lie not one to another, it doesn't mean, well, it's okay then to lie to a non-Christian. He's talking about don't lie to one another, the people in your church. But like I said, I don't think he's talking about just blatant lies. He is talking about that. But I also think he's talking about don't play the game of let's pretend. Don't be a phony, I think, is what he's saying. He's talking about life in the church. Look what he goes on to say in verse 9. He says, lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, verse 10. Putting off the old man. How does the world, how do they lie? How does the world relate to each other? So they're always trying to come off as somebody that they're not. Isn't that the way you guys operated? I did when I was in the world. You want to be tougher, smarter, cuter, smarter, socially above everybody else. And Paul says, take off that coat. Don't be a phony. Don't lie one to another, but put on the coat of humility. And he's saying in verse 10, put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. He's saying, put on the coat of humility. This acknowledging God is the creator of all men who are made in his image and no man is above another in Christ. That's why he says, and we're going to finish up here in verse 11. He says this, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. This is why I'm saying this all ties together, verses 9 through 11. He's taken a list of groups that were opposed to each other or were considered inferior. Greeks and Jews did not get along. They both considered the other inferior, circumcised or non-circumcised. What's interesting is he names... In verse 11, then he goes on to say barbarians. Why does he throw them in there? Because they were culturally inferior. That's the way the Greeks considered them. And their speech is what gave them away. And the reason you know where the word barbarian came from, because the Greeks would hear their speech and it sounded like they were just going bar, bar, bar. So that's literally how they got the name. And so they called them barbarians and they were considered to be lowlife. Isn't that the way society works a lot of times? You know, My Fair Lady, if you've ever seen the movie, don't worry about it if you haven't. But old Professor Higgins, he's saying somebody's social standing is determined by their accent. So what does he do? He takes this girl, he finds her, just low life, whatever, and he trains her to talk like upper crust snoots, doesn't he? Here's the problem, though. Her nature's still there. She's still who she was. She just learned outwardly how to speak away that wasn't her. That's what Paul's point is here. He takes her to the racetrack around all these upper crust people and next thing you know her nature comes out and she's just saying things they're all like whoa but she's saying it in a cultured way because her speech was a lie. And Paul's saying don't put on airs that way at your church amongst yourselves. Don't make social distinctions of any kind. Just be who you are. Don't try to impress anybody by your money, by your Bible knowledge, or that you don't have any refinement. You don't have to act the other way either to show us how crude you can be. What he's saying is we should just be people that are new creations. Because look what he says in verse 11b. He says there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. Well, look how he ends it. But, he says, Christ is all and in all. And that's the way a fellowship should work, that Christ is all. That everyone in here that is a Christian, that names to be a Christian, he should be everything to you, shouldn't he? It should be our number one love. Just because of what he's done for us, he's our all. 
And it's also he's not all, but it says he's in all. And we should recognize that he is in each other. Amen. Because like they say, every church has got odd, cranky, strange people. And we're no exception. And you're like, I know he's in the pulpit. That's fine. <laughs> I'll accept that. No matter who you think is odd, strange, or cranky, or poor, destitute, whatever, or out of sorts, or whatever, he's saying, if they're a true Christian, guess what? Jesus, he's saying, Christ is in all. He's pleased to dwell in them. And we don't have 5,000 different Jesuses, do we? The same Jesus that's in me is in you is in everyone. And the same with the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that dwells in us. There's not two Holy Spirits. We've learned today the same Spirit that was in the Lord Jesus Christ is the same Spirit that's in all of us here. Amen? Amen. And that should be our attitude. And if your attitude's that way, it should greatly affect our fellowship. We should prepare to put the message into practice because we're getting ready to rub elbows. Hopefully everyone is in the back there and back there. That means there's neither Shelbyville nor Louisville. Now we got some people that are anti Shelby. They're going to have to get over that. So he's saying bonds get in. There's neither Shelbyville nor Louisville. And I, I'm just joking about that. Neither North nor South, right? Bond or free. Christ is all and in all. Isn't that what he's saying? So we're going to deal with the positives next week, but we have got to keep this in mind. Got to remember our identity every day we wake up. Be conscious of the fact that Jesus, by his spirit, lives in me, walks in me, talks to me, never leaves me. And he will give me the power to put to death the old man and walk in newness of life. Be conscious of that. Amen? That's it in a nutshell, right? You say, well, why didn't you make the nutshell first? Maybe I will next week. New creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you, Father, for your indwelling presence in our lives and that you walk in us and dwell in us. You give us the power to overcome sin that through what Jesus did on the cross and our participation in that, Lord, that we can walk as dead to the old man, that our old man is dead and we have a new nature now and we can walk in newness of life. You'll give us that power and that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. I just ask, Lord, that you'll make that real to all of us, our union with you, that we are one spirit, one nature, that we are one with you, and that what we experience now is what we will experience in the future one day when we see you face to face. I thank you that you'll reveal that to us. It's our prayer for the church. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.